Well, Max, I didn't anticipate that you were going to tell on me and tattle on me about changing up the lectionary passage, but anyways, yes. <laughs> when Doug and I first started dating, he was just beginning an obsession with birding. He grew up in Southern California in an urban area within a family that was not particularly outdoorsy. As a kid, the only birds he would see with any frequency were the seagulls that stole his lunch when he went surfing. And so perhaps not surprisingly, he was truly mesmerized when a friend took him to Oregon and they walked along a river where they saw scores of bald eagles and hawks and ospreys. And so he immediately went and bought Audubon's North American Field Guide of Birds and began creating a birding list. It is fun to look back on now. He was such a novice at the beginning of our relationship that he was impressed that I could identify a mallard, a Canada's goose, a red-winged blackbird, and a killdeer. During our first two years of marriage, we traveled through 30 odd states. And so this bird list grew pretty steadily. But then as we settled in, in North Carolina, it became a bit trickier to see new birds. However, Doug still kind of expected to add a new bird every time we took a walk. And so his birding soon began to annoy me. I got sick of long pauses on our walks with dog and baby to stare into dense vegetation in an attempt to add another bird to the list. I was exhausted by his attempts to categorize all of these little brown birds. And so I admit that I was delighted one day when our 14 month year old daughter, Johanna, took the giant Sibley's guides to birds down from the shelf and went through all thousand pages and looked at every single Stellar's Jay, Kirkland Warblers and Pileated Woodpecker pointed at them and said, bird, 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 bird. Today, our scripture passage deals with categorization. Most broadly, the division between people who are happy or blessed and those who are not. Both Jeremiah and the Psalm focus on this divide between those who are spiritually deep who are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season. And those who are spiritually poor, who turn from God, who are like a shrub in the desert or an uninhabited salt land. These are the wicked who are blown away by the wind like chaff. This week, I confess that I felt a bit of uneasiness about these texts. I was uneasy with how casually they divide the world into good and bad and how they equate happiness with being good and unhappiness with being bad. I think I especially reacted to the Jeremiah passage. I don't know there. Um, I don't know. There's just something I think about this poor shrub trying to survive in the desert that just couldn't get its roots deep enough and became like chaff that blew away that made me sad. There are plenty of people I love, like that shrub. People through no fault of their own who were planted in deserts and salt flats. These texts from the Old Testament are linked with Jesus's beatitude because of a word, happy or blessed. 
Matthew's Jesus gives a list of characteristics that he describes as being blessed. And they include many admirable qualities, gentleness, being a peacemaker, being merciful, having a pure heart. And when I was a kid, I was told these were the B attitudes, the kind of attitudes you should be or should have. And I heard plenty of sermons on the B attitudes. Most of them gave a definition of each quality and gave practical examples of how we should live or could live out these attributes. One thing all these sermons had in common though was that the preacher kind of stumbled, stumbled over the first B attitude, poor in spirit. Struggled to find some pat definition for why this was actually a good thing. They usually reach for something like humble or meek. However, I admit I always found that it seemed like a bit of a stretch. It seemed to me that the most straightforward way to read poor in spirit was not positive at all. A straightforward definition seems much more like the tree planted in the desert who just can't seem to get its roots down to the living water. Or as another way of describing what the Psalms call a sinner or a scoffer. Similarly, the second beatitude of being a mourner seems strange to me as well. Isn't being a mourner part and parcel of being a human being? Now in sermons I've heard sometimes those who mourn spiritualized to mean those who repent or mourn their sins, especially in more conservative spaces. And other times those who mourn was psychologized to mean those people who aren't repressing or suppressing their emotions especially in more liberal spaces, but I don't know that I buy it. Isn't those who mourn a pretty good description of all of us? Another way of saying everybody, especially in this world that our ancestors sometimes called a veil of tears. So instead of seeing this as a list that provides a typology of all the ways that we can be good and holy, I admit that I see something else going on here something that jives with my own experience, namely that you are as likely to find someone with a pure heart in a bar as in a church. I wonder if instead of providing a categorization of all kinds of people, Jesus isn't doing something a bit more like what Johanna did with the bird book, looking over a crowd of people and overturning the careful categories by saying bird, 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 or in this case, blessed, Blessed, blessed. In other words, what if this passage is really one of indiscriminate blessing, where Jesus renames people as God's beloved? The text then stands as a reminder that none of us is, after all, deserving either the cruelty or the grace of this world. None of us in control of where we are planted or when the droughts might come. I think we all could admit that we are living through difficult times and it is a time where categories are proliferating. We are busy naming people and name calling, anti-vaxxer, snowflake, sheeple or woke, democrats, one I heard the other day, anti-masker, covidiot or super spreader. Unlike beautiful bird names like ruby-throated hummingbird or scarlet tanager, these names aren't meant as ways of honoring individuality or uniqueness. 
They are ways of demeaning and stealing people's names. People are no longer your cousin Sandy or your high school friend Jennifer. These names stifle our capacity to love and blight our imagination and anesthetize our compassion. I think as people captivated by Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, we must work very hard to call people the names that Jesus called them, looking over the whole tangled mess and pronouncing beloved and blessed. Jesus's Beatitudes are followed by one of the hardest commands in scripture, that we love our enemies. And in times of peace and ease, it is frankly a widely popular command. But in times of division and war, it quickly seems absurd, naive, and sometimes even a bit repulsive to people. And in these times, I think we get lulled out of any sentimentality that we have about this command and come to recognize that it is a pretty stern and difficult discipline. But I am convinced that it must remain the center of the good news that Jesus has for us. For much of my childhood, I was tormented by fear that my parents were going to hell. The Christians that made me think this way were also trying to convince me that God loved me. And in a lot of ways, they did make me feel like God loved me. However, they also implanted in my soul this deep fear of those barren spaces in the world and in the world to come that exist outside of God's love. The fear of these places, I think, will likely never completely go away. But being a Mennonite has helped a great deal. And I will tell you why because Mennonites have made a very serious attempt to follow Jesus's command to love our enemies. And at some point, while I was trying to live out this nearly impossible demand, I was overwhelmed by the following thought. God would never ask us to do this nearly impossible thing if God didn't also love God's own enemies. God has not divided the world into beloved and blessed and hated and cursed. And so we as God's children must constantly resist cursing what God wants blessed. And so I will challenge you to just take a moment to think of someone who is genuinely hard to love. And I'm not asking you to manufacture a feeling of love or goodwill towards them. Just a second to take and close your eyes and remind yourself silently that so-and-so is God's beloved. I will watch the time. It is my prayer for you that you feel so deeply the belovedness of your enemies, that you can risk believing that you are also God's dearly beloved child. Amen.